Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Hallelujah, Jesus. Amen. We are going to stand tonight for the reading of the word. If you are here, if you want to stand at home, you may as well. Hallelujah. We're going to stand for the reading of the word tonight. And uh, we're going to start in John chapter number four and verse number 10. Just a reminder, we're back to regular schedule. So that means Sunday, no in-house service. Sunday night is in-house service. All right. And so we'll stay with all the little hoops as we go along the way, the shifts and the little moves and such. However, it looks like this, uh, our region in the state of Illinois is going to move on to phase four here Friday. So uh, what all that means, which it does mean some things, but nonetheless, amen. John chapter number four, we're going to begin reading with verse number 10. And I'm going to read a few verses and I'll allow you to be seated and I'll continue reading. How that? How's that? Is that a good deal? Amen. John four and verse 10. And Jesus answered and said unto her, if thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, sir, thou hast nothing to draw with. and The well is deep from whence then hast thou that living water. Art thou greater than our father Jacob? which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water. I already transgressed, didn't I? The woman said unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. I'll let you be seated and I'll pray. Father, I thank you tonight for your word. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for the scriptures. God, for in them we have life. God, if we'll seek them out. I pray, O oh Lord, open our eyes and understanding here this evening. God, concerning, Lord Jesus, these words. God, and let them, Lord Jesus, apply to our individual lives. God, as you see fit, in the name of Jesus Christ. Christ, I pray. Amen. I'll read verse 15 one more time because I planned on stopping at 14, but and you just get reading, and that's the way it goes. And the one woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. I wonder what gave her that idea. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. 
But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Amen. Uh, tonight, I want to talk to you about this for a title here, our 12th part of our John series, The Power of an Unabbreviated Truth. The Power of an Unabbreviated Truth. So Jesus, and uh, just kind of give us a, a bird's eye overview through some of these verses and even others that I did not read in your hearing uh, yet in this series. As Jesus talks with this woman at the well, there is a progression of revelation concerning who Jesus is, who she knew the Lord to be upon the initial meeting and who uh, he was after this meeting was complete. Jesus told her that if she had known the gift of God and who he was in particular, that she would rather be asking him of something, referring to something to drink. So in the beginning, we understand that this Samaritan woman recognizes Jesus because it's, it's contained for us here in the scriptures that she recognizes him as a Jew, of course. And she, throughout her most of her dialogue with Jesus, even addresses him as sir. However, as she continues uh, this interaction with Jesus, she comes to that point whenever he speaks to her about some things in her life that perhaps he wouldn't know unless there's some type of divine knowledge that's taken place concerning uh, the husbands and the one that she was with now, not her husband, in that she, she comes to perceive that he is a prophet. I perceive that you are a prophet. All right, and so we have this transition of just knowing him as a Jew and now, you know, calling him sir, but now a little bit more in-depth revelation of who he is and now noticing that perhaps you are a prophet. And then in verse number 26, Jesus kind of pulls back the curtain of who he is unto her and lets her know that I am the Messiah that you speak of. I am the Christ that you speak of. And then, before it's all said and done in the chapter, uh, we understand the woman goes back to her city. There's other Samaritans that come out, and they learn of the Lord, and, and uh, their lives are absolutely impacted by him, and they beg that he would stay a couple days longer. And whenever all of this is said and done, the Samaritans as a whole know him as Christ. And then there's this little tagline on the end, Christ, the Savior of the world. And so there's been this, this progression of revelation for the Samaritans, even for the Samaritan woman that at first just knew him as a Jew. And as she stayed in dialogue with him and had communication with him, uh, spent, if I could say it like this, spent some time with him. Her revelation from just being a Jew changed that this is the Savior of the world. And I would dare to say tonight that this should be the common occurrence for anybody that spends time with the Lord. 
that after a while when they seen him as, as this Samaritan, as just a Jew or this or that, there should come a moment in their time of having dialogue with the Lord and spending time with the Lord, a deeper revelation of who he really is. Amen. And for the Samaritan woman, he was, and all of all the world for that matter, he was the savior of the world. Amen. So she has this shift. Amen. In her spirit. Because if you'll remember to begin with, she says, well, you're a Jew and the Jews have no dealings with us. The Samaritans, she had her opinion concerning the Jews. She had her opinion about what their reaction should be about people like her. Right? The Samaritans. But now when it's all said and done, they're saying, no, this guy is the savior of the world. And so they understand, they know, and this woman, the Samaritan woman, quite frankly, knows that he indeed can tell her all things, and they are begging for him to tarry. Amen. With the revelation, no doubt, of who this individual actually is. And so, uh, with that said, as a church, it is important then to keep people connected. I know we haven't said anything about it in a while, and we've been disconnected. I was talking to Sister Mason. I think what she said the other day I was talking about. We might need to. She said we might need to keep that thing for next year. I said we might need to call it reconnected. <laughs> Amen. Reconnect. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, people uh, in the church, then we need to pe- keep people engaged in a connection with the Lord long enough that they will look past their pre- preconceived opinions about Him. Right. And about his interaction and whether it's proper or if he will. Because, you know, some people have uh, opinions even about the church of the Lord overall. Well, he would never he would never save me. Or he would never have compassion on me or mercy upon me. Because he's this great God Almighty. Right? And I'm this little peon that's made fail, had failures and mistakes and so on and so forth. Well, we got to keep people in a connection, engaged in a connection long enough with the Lord that they can get past all the preconceived notions they may have about the Lord and the church. All right? Until they discover his purpose for their life, which is exactly what it was for the Samaritan woman. The Savior of the world, which means your Savior just as well as the Jew's Savior and the Greek Savior, your Savior, the Savior of the world. Interestingly enough, at the time of this writing, when John is pinning the gospel of John, the Roman emperor of that day uh, was, was labeled with the title Savior of the world. That's what many knew him as, the savior of the world. But Jesus is bringing to the reality of these Samaritans that lived under uh, the Roman government and rule that in reality, uh, the savior of the world was not found in a political system. The savior of the world was not found in a governing body, a man or a personality for that factor. But the savior of the world was the God of the Old Testament that manifested himself in the flesh as the man Christ Jesus that was standing right before them. We have scriptural precedent that the God of the Old Testament was spoken as the Savior. The Bible says in Isaiah 45 and verses 20 through 22, if I may read to you tonight here from the prophet Isaiah, he says, Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together ye that are escaped of the nations, that have no knowledge that set up wood of their graven image and pray unto a God that cannot 
save. Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together who have declared this from ancient time, who have told it from that time. Have not I the Lord? Look here at this phrase. And there is no God beside me, a just God and Savior. There is none beside me. Me, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. So he's speaking, he said, Tell all the nations even gather around. He said, They have built them gods of wood and in stone, and they have bent over to them and they have prayed to them, but they are constantly praying to something that cannot save them. They are constantly uh, going to and trying to get direction from something that cannot save them. He says, but I tell you, I've told it from old and I tell you now. He says, let those same people that go to those false gods come unto me because there is no other God beside me. There is not another. And I am a just God and I am a Savior. Where their gods cannot save, I am a God where, where is there is no other God and I can can say there's none beside me right there's none beside me there is none else there for two reasons there was no other God and there was no other Savior no other God and no other Savior the Bible says also in the Old Testament of Hosea 13 and verse number 4 again the Spirit of the Lord is speaking yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt and thou shalt know, no, that's two different no's there, no, no God but me, for there is no Savior. He says it quite plainly. There is no Savior besides me. And so when we start reading in the New Testament Scripture and people identifying Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, we're not talking about a Savior of a New Testament that's different than a Savior of the Old Testament. We're not talking about another Savior. There is no Savior besides God. There's none else. When we're talking about Jesus Christ being the Savior of the world, we have the revelation that God came down in the form of a man as Christ Jesus, and they called him Savior. Woo! Hallelujah. Because God is the Savior of the world. Amen. And so not only did the Samaritan woman in certain regards, not know who Jesus was because he said, if you had known me in the gift of God, you would have asked of me. Not know who Jesus was in his entirety. But she did not understand what he was talking about when he talked to her about living water. And if you'd asked me to drink, and again, much like Nicodemus, this woman at the well is, at first she does not understand Jesus' analogy concerning the well and the water and all of this drink things. For that matter, I wrote down just a few things today. What were some things that this woman did not understand? Here's just a few of them. Number one, she didn't understand why he, a Jew, would be talking to her, a Samaritan. Number two, she did not understand how he could give her water. Number three, she did not understand where this living water was because well water wasn't living water. All right. And also, if there was such water around, she didn't understand why Jacob, oh, great father Jacob, dug a well to begin with. All right. And so last week we talked about, just give me a little time here, but last week we talked about the Jew-Samaritan relationship and how the Samaritans came into being, how they came to 
existence during the time of the kings in the Old Testament. Some people may uh, remember that. Some people may be just trying to forget it. I don't know. But nonetheless, how they come into being. And you will remember that her being a Samaritan wasn't the only strike against this, this individual. There were really three strikes against her that we kind of alluded to last week. So not only was she a Samaritan, but the other two strikes that she had against her was, and again, this is nothing, this is not Paul McGee's theology. This is scripture, culture, theology. I don't want to be, you know, pinning the tail on the donkey here. Uh, The other strike that she had against her is that she was a woman. All right. The third strike that she had against her was what appears to be uh, her immoral lifestyle. All right. Notice her question in verse number nine. Why would a Jew ask drink of me, look what she says, which am a woman of Samaria? So she kind of leads with the gender woman aspect, a woman of Samaria. Folks, just culture, this helps us sometimes just knowing culture. Speaking to a woman in public for a rabbi, a teacher, was unknown in that day. In other words, it simply wasn't practice. Rabbis did not speak to a woman in person. As a matter of fact, you can partially see you can partially see this whenever the disciples refer return from the town and they see Jesus is speaking to this woman at the well because they say there in verse number 27 they don't say anything but it, it, John lets us in on the internal thoughts of their mind. The Bible says they marveled that he talked with the woman. They marveled that he talked with the woman. And so the Samaritan aspect and the immoral aspect isn't even considered right in this moment. They're just marveling because he's talking to a woman. And he is, by their consideration, a rabbi and a teacher. Yes, they are in a public place, but they're having a private conversation. Amen. And so they're a little bit appalled. I want to give you, again, this is just for the purpose of giving you a little feel for the culture of this time. And I just want to share some things with you uh, from a scholar named Craig Keener who speaks about the culture of that time. He says, according to Jewish sages, Jewish men were to avoid unnecessary conversation with women. Thus, among the six activities listed as, as unbecoming for a scholar is conversing with women was one of them. Sage is also worried about sending the wrong message to onlookers. Look at this. If one talked with even one sister or wife in public, someone who did not know that woman was a relative might get the wrong impression. I'm just talking to you about the culture and time. Any wife being in private with a man other than her husband was normally suspected of adultery. Traditional Greek culture, because we have Jewish culture, Greek culture, Roman culture, all that taking place here simultaneously at the same time. Traditional Greek culture, likewise, normally viewed it as shameful for a wife to be seen talking with a young man. It says a gossiper will complain that women are immoral if they are conversers with men. Traditional Romans also regarded wives speaking publicly with others Husbands as a horrible matter reflecting possible flirtatious designs and subverting the moral order of the state. Even today, now we're fast forwarding, even today traditional Middle Eastern societies, social intercourse between unrelated men and women is almost 
equivalent to sexual intercourse. If such a man and woman are alone together for more than 20 minutes, it's assumed that they have had intercourse today in the Middle East. Amen. And so we put this story then in the context of all of that. And the disciples are marveling that Jesus is having a conversation with this woman. But then to add insult to injury, she's a woman, she's a Samaritan woman, she has this taint as it would be of an immoral woman, right? According to Genesis 24 and 12, remember, uh, we went, we talked about last week all these different scenarios that happened at wells and men had found wives at wells, you know, and so forth, their bride. Well, in Genesis 24, 12, that's another one of those times that it was at evening, the time that women go out to draw water, that they came to the well. And so here is this woman. It's not evening. It's a odd hour. She does not come to draw water at the typical time that other women normally drew water. And so the question that begs answering in our minds is this, did she do this to isolate herself from the other women or was she doing this because perhaps she wasn't socially accepted among the other women and even if she did get what Jesus was talking about while they were around the well and at the well and returned to the city and 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 went there to tell other folks it seems interesting to me that the Bible says in verse 28 that when she left her water pot and went back into the city she dresses not the women but the men Amen. She goes back and she addresses the men. So I don't know what type of relationship her and other women had, maybe due to the life that she had lived. All right? And so we have all that, and Jesus brings it, brings it to the surface when he tells her, you've had five husbands, and the one that you are with is not your husband. Now, I, I want to just, this is not something we typically think about when we read this story, but... Consider now, this is a Samaritan woman. She is a woman. You've heard the culture of the day, right? You've heard the culture of the day. Bring that into mind. She has an immoral tendency, it would seem, in Scripture. There's some that even wonder, one of the reasons why the Samaritan woman may not have been getting what Jesus was saying was because she may have thought him to be another suitor. Talking about, give me something to drink. Now think of this and just in a, and I'm not trying to paint any, but just think of this just in a playful, give me to drink. Oh, if you knew who I was, you'd ask of me. This little back and forth terminology, well, you don't have anything to draw with. Are you, and some even believe that that final question of Jesus could have maybe really been sealing the deal in her heart. Well, bring, where is your husband? Bring him hither. I have no husband. That could have sealed the deal for a whole immoral scenario. Asking a woman, bring your husband, and she say, I have no connection. I just, okay, all right. And so we have this whole discourse that's happened in between them, amen, and we know that evidently Samaritan isn't really getting what the Lord's laying down to begin with. The context uh, of her and him, the only ones being there, isn't looking so good. I'm just saying, in her eyes it may be looking good, but, you know, it, it's, it's kind of leaning in that direction. 
And so when we think about all these things, culturally, as a Samaritan and culturally, as a woman and culturally, being immoral, Jesus should have had no dealings with this individual. By culture standards of Jews and Samaritans, the Jews shouldn't have had no dealings with the Samaritans. By culture standards of her being a lady and him being a man, he shouldn't have had any dealings with her, especially a rabbi in this type of setting. Culturally, her having an immoral, right, type of life, and him being God Almighty rubbed in flesh, one would think that this just isn't just the proper dealing. She'd have no dealings with this lady. But listen to me. Can someone hear me right now tonight? What Jesus is doing in this moment is trying to break a cultural mentality that dictates that somebody can only be accepted or not or brought into this matter or not. He, You know, society, culture says that one can't have love. That one can't be forgiven. That one cannot do this, do that. That one can't go to church. That one can't have God touch them. And the culture mentality wasn't left in the book of John. It's still today. It's still even within the city of Mount Carmel. There'll be certain voices in culture that say, you can't go to the first apostolic church because. You can't go there or God can't touch you there because. And what that is is the voices of culture that's trying to dictate what God or cannot do in a life. And Jesus says, I'm coming and I'm breaking down every cultural voice and boundary that says it can't happen for a Samaritan. It can't happen for a moral lady. It can't happen for a lady. I've come to break that down and let them know it can happen. Amen. We deal with the very same thing in the church world today. Amen. People question our dealings with them, whoever them may be, because culture has told them the church will have no dealings with you type of people. Uh Or the church will have no dealings with people that have that type of problem. Amen. And many times they are cut off at the pass of ever having a connection with the Lord or even the church because the voices of culture are already telling them it's not possible. Amen. Amen. And so they're blinded. They're blinded to what really can happen. They're blinded to the... Because listen, this woman is coming and she sees him as a Jew, but once their connection, time spent, Savior of the world. So see, if they go off their original thought of what they know God or the church to be, and yet culture is speaking this type of verbiage into their mind, why won't they listen to culture and say, you know what, you're right, because they have a surface understanding of the church and God to begin with. And so if I take all this in, that I'm too immoral and I'm a Samaritan and I'm a lady, along with the fact, well, he's just a Jew. Big deal. Huh? But if I come to the understanding that he's the Savior of the world, Hallelujah. That he's the savior of the world and that he died for all humanity and he nailed all the handwritings of the ordinances that were against us to his cross. Then it doesn't matter who I am, what I am, or the present way that I'm living. He can bridge the gap from where he is to where I am and make all things new. Amen. But see, the power of abbreviated truth 
of knowing just that. Mm-hmm. He's a Jew. Knowing just that. Culture says unacceptable. Can't be done. Nope, 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 nope. Sorry, Mark, Mark, Mark against you. Not looking good tomorrow either. The power of an abbreviated truth will keep somebody in a mode of not engaging in that relationship with God. Of not giving, quote, unquote, even church a chance. Because they have an abbreviated truth. And the power in that is that it keeps us from fully engaging. Amen. So, abbreviated truths, right? Well, here we are. So, you know, the Samaritan woman may be misunderstanding on several levels here. We understand that. More than one, perhaps. But per her, again, one of the things she didn't understand, how can you give me water? You don't even have anything to draw with. So here she is. She's still thinking, talking about the natural here. You don't even have anything to draw with. For that matter, this is Jacob's well. Even today, they say Jacob's well is 100 plus feet deep. So it could have even been deeper then, you know, debris and other things over there. So you don't even have anything to draw with. And the well is deep. How can you give me something to drink? Furthermore, this is a well, my dear Jew friend. This is a well. This is not living water because living water was running water. Living water is like a stream. Living water is something that flows uninhibited. And so she says, this is a well. This is not living water. And for that matter, Jewish Jesus, if that type of water had been around when our dear father Jacob, amen, dug out this well to begin with, and he let his children drink from it and his livestock drink from it. I mean, if there was living water, then why did he even dig a well to begin with? Now, again, part of the Samaritan's woman's, and I'll call it ignorance, okay? Part of her ignorance is due to the fact that I mentioned last week that whenever the Assyrians inhabited Samaria and the northern kingdom, and they took out most of the tribes of Israel that was in the north, they then inhabited the land with Assyrian people, right? And remember, the Bible even talks of this. You can read this in the book of Kings, that there were lions that began to attack them, and so they felt like they probably disturbed and made mad the gods of the land, and they wanted to know how to appease them. And they said, I tell you what, we'll send a Jewish priest in among you and teach you how to serve the Lord. Again, it wasn't like, a one and nothing thing. They just added him to the list of the other gods they already served. So they had a, uh, you know, serving the Lord, but not solely serving the Lord. You know, he was among many. And so there was a little bit of impurity uh, to their worship. All right. And so as a result of doing all of this <clears throat> in that time, then the priests would have primarily uh, taught and instructed them concerning uh, those books of the first five books of the Bible, the books of the law, also known as the books of Moses. And come to find out historically that uh, the Samaritans only really accept the first five books of the Bible and did not uh, accept, do not accept the writing of the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and the minor prophets, or the writing of the Psalms. And so what we have here, what we have here is a woman, again, with abbreviated truth. All she has to base everything that she is trying to live for is based upon the first five books of the Bible. Imagine trying to live your Christian life now just off the first five books. Abbreviated truth. I like what William Barclay said. He said, truncated truth will produce ignorance. 
Because here are some passages. Here are some passages the Samaritan woman would have missed because she only endorsed or gave herself to the first five books of the Bible. Here are some passages that she would have missed from the prophets. She would have missed and would have very easily and greatly, in my opinion, shed some light on what she was now hearing concerning Jesus saying, ask of me to drink and I will give you living waters and you'll never thirst again. I'll put a well in you. It'll be springing up. Huh? All this verbiage that Jesus has given to her. Consider, if you will, Isaiah chapter 11 and verse number 16. She's not going to subscribe to this because this is a part of the prophets. So this abbreviated truth, this is where she misses out on some things. The Bible is speaking in Isaiah 11. It's speaking of one who will be the root of Jesse and the branch of Jesse. We come to the book of Revelation. John even tells us that he was the root and the offspring of Jesse, namely Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ follows in the line of King David. And David, amen, was the son of Jesse. Look what the Bible says. This is the last verse of chapter 11. And then I'm going to continue reading in Isaiah 12, verses 1, 2, 3. Again, chapter and verse divisions came way, 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 way later. There was none to begin with. The Bible says, and there shall be a highway. This is Isaiah eleven sixteen, And there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria. Now, this is interesting, right? Because remember, there's people left in Assyria, the northern kingdom. You know, the Assyrians came in. The Samaritans came from that joint, you know, uh, of union between the Jews and uh, the, the Gentiles of the Assyrians. He says there's going to be a remnant which, which shall be left from Assyria like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. Look at verse number 1 of Isaiah 12 now. He says, and in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Look at verse number 2. She wouldn't have subscribed to this now, right? She's dealing with an abbreviated truth. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and be not and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. She had an abbreviated truth. She didn't have prophet Isaiah. Had she had prophet Isaiah, something would have been clicking off in her mind whenever Jesus said, if you ask of me water, I would give you to drink. For that matter, I'll put a well in you springing up into everlasting life. She didn't have that. So the Bible here emphatically tells us in Isaiah 12 that God is our salvation and that they, the remnant, if you will, will draw water out of the wells of salvation. If they're drawing water out of the wells of salvation and God is salvation, then they're going to draw water from him. And Jesus Christ is he in the flesh. Hallelujah. Amen. And so this really parallels with Jesus' response to her again in verse number 14. He says, the water that I will give you is what? Going to be a well within you. The water that I give you will be a well within you. He says, eh, I love it, because he's going to tell her in just a little bit, you don't have to go to a certain place. Amen. You won't have to come out here to draw. You won't have to go there or that mountain or over yonder. No, you won't have to go to a certain place to draw because the source is going to be in you. Hallelujah. Woo! Hallelujah. 
The source is going to be in you. I'm going to put a well in you. Look at this, Colossians 1 and verse number 27. I like this verse. The apostle Paul speaking to the church at Colossae, he says, to whom? You look at verse number 26. He was addressing his saints. To whom? His saints. God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of Glory. Hallelujah. And so there are other verses like this that could have helped the Samaritan woman in this moment if she did not have an abbreviated truth. Amen. She would have been familiar with verses like Jeremiah 2 and 13 when God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah and says, For my people have committed two evils. Right? They have forsaken me. What? God. The fountain of living Living waters that hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That would have came to her mind if she wasn't dealing with an unabbreviated truth. She was dealing with an abbreviated truth, see? And so since it was abbreviated, did I even do my title right tonight? The power of an unabbreviated truth. Yeah, okay. Amen. Hallelujah. She was dealing with an abbreviated truth right here. Amen. The Bible goes on to say in Isaiah 55 and verse 1, and I don't have it up there, but that's all right. He says, ho. He's not Santa Claus, but he says, ho. There's another place in Scripture he says, ho, ho. There is. Amen. He says, ho. Everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. He says a little further down, and your soul shall live. And then he specifies in verse number 6, he kind of tying everything together. Oh, oh everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. Now consider verse 6. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Oh, honey, if you did not have an abbreviated truth, amen, and you knew God and you knew the gift of God, had you known him and the gift of God, you would have asked of him to drink and he would have sought, amen, after you and joined with you and you would have had wells of living water springing up inside of your bosom if you sought him and called upon him while he was near. Hey, if you was thirsty, your soul would live. She didn't have that. Or at least she did not subscribe to that. Everybody doing all right? Even we'll get further. We'll preach about it later. But even, well, I'll preach about it a little bit now and a little bit later. Even in John chapter number 7, the Bible says in the last day of the feast, Jesus stood there. It was during the Feast of Tabernacles. They would typically bring a pitcher of water and they would pour it up on the altar. And while they, this is all going on and occurring, in the last day of the feast, Jesus raises his voice and he says, If any man thirst, come let him drink of the waters of life freely. And the Bible particularly says this spake he concerning the Holy Ghost. But the Holy Ghost was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Amen. But ultimately, ultimately, Jesus illustrated at Calvary that living waters came from him. He already alluded in John 3, which we've already studied, he already alluded to being lifted up, right? A little further chapters away, now in chapter number 12, he'll talk again about that lifting up. If I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men unto, them, unto me. 
In parentheses, it tells us, and this he spake, signifying by what death he should die. That if I be lifted up, I draw all men unto me. And when we hear all this and this lifting up and all these things that are being alluded to, he's telling us about the living waters finally. When we read the gospel account of John, chapter 19 of the Lord's crucifix at Golgotha, the Bible says in John 19 and verse 34, amen, right? All right, they're going out here. They're checking on these guys. They're seeing if they're dead or not because they don't want them to stay up until, you know, the next morn. we got to take care of this. So we're going to break their legs if need to to hasten their death. And the Bible says, but one of the soldiers with a spear, with spear pierced his, Jesus' side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. I submit to you in that moment, Jesus is illustrating for all humanity that he was the living water. We have Old Testament record, New Testament, in the book of Hebrews record, that the life of the flesh is in the blood. That scripture. The life of the flesh is in the blood. So what flowed out of his side was blood and water. If you will, living, living Water, hallelujah. So much so that the same writer, John, that's writing the gospel is later writing in the book of Revelation and it's coming to the close of the book of Revelation and he says, the spirit and the bride say come and let him that is a thirst come and whosoever will, let him take the waters of life free. Had she known God and the gift of God, she would have asked of him. She's living life off an abbreviated truth. But as Jesus is having conversation with him, he's telling her the rest of the story. Amen. He's telling her the rest of the story. (laughs) Hallelujah. And since she normally and typically Samaritans accept just the first five books of the Bible, her truncated truth left her with a little bit of an adjusted history as well in comparison to the Jews because, listen to me, the Samaritans revered Mount Gerizim, higher, more important than Mount Zion. The reason why they do this because in the book of Genesis, whenever Abraham first came over into the promised land. It's in this vicinity of Shechem, Sychar, Mount Gerizim there, that this is the first place that Moses built an altar unto the Lord. And that whenever the children of Israel crossed over the Jordan and finally inhabited the land of Canaan, you remember that they put part of the people on Mount Ebal. They put part of the people on Mount Gerizim. And the Bible says those on Mount Ebal were hollering the cursings of the Lord as they were repeated, but those on Mount Gerizim were hollering the blessings of the Lord in repetition. And so that being the Mount of Blessing, Mount Gerizim, and Abraham first did his altar there and all of that, then that is our mountain. But see, when you don't have beyond the five books of the law, you don't have a good history on Jerusalem and Mount Zion and the city of David and the temple being there. Because all of that comes after that. So she had an abbreviated truth. So, And the reason why I say that is because you see in the scripture, she starts to make a distinguishment about our fathers worshipped in this mountain, but they say in Jerusalem is where you are. She's making a distinction. She's not in Jerusalem. 
She's making the distinction that in Mount Gerizim, our fathers worship, but you say your fathers in Jerusalem. Now, look, this amazes me. I just got to throw this in just as it's not extra, but just as bonus. Look how spiritual things turned. Listen, look how spiritual things turned when she perceived that he was a prophet. Huh? You've had five husbands, one you have not. I perceive that thou art a prophet. And then they start talking about worship. She started talking about worship. <laughs> Listen, that might not get anybody else but me. But if people find out I'm a pastor, it's bless God. Oh, at church last week. I was praying the other day. God's done this for me and that for me. Look at this cross in my pocket. I'm just telling you. Once she found, figured out he was a prophet, it was like, let's talk about worship. Woo. Our father's worship in this mountain. That's okay. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Amen. So she talks about her father's worshiping in this mountain. Mount Gerizim is what she is referring to. All right. And she, again, she distinguishes that in comparison to Mount Zion, which would be known as Jerusalem, where, where the Jewish temple existed. But Jesus lets her know. Again, he is opening up her mind and her spirit and all that. Jesus lets her know that very soon, worship's not going to be regulated to your quote-unquote mountain or the Jews' mountain that is in Jerusalem. In other words, he's telling her, Soon, very soon, worship's not going to be regulated to a geographical location. Because much, even through the Old Testament and leading on into the New, worship was many times regulated to geographic location. If a person was going to sacrifice an offering to the Lord, they were best sacrificing it at the door of the tabernacle because they had to make sure that all the blood was released and, 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 and uh, totally out of the animal so that they would eat no blood. And the only way to for sure ensure that was to have a priest to inspect it as it was being done. Amen. And so you didn't want to eat blood because you was cut off from Israel if you did that. And so almost by location and by all these things set into place, a person then sacrificed at the temple. For that matter, many times if they were going to eat meat in their family, it was going to be because they offered sacrifice to God. And so the geographic location then dictated their worship and so jesus is saying soon and very soon it's not going to it's not going to be at the temple it's not going to be that mountain or this mountain it's not going to be regulated by geographic location he said people's not going to offer sacrifices for blood and there's not going to be a priest that's going to take that blood and go into the holies of holies, even with an atonement lamb or atonement ram. And he's not going to be sprinkling it before the holies of holies on the mercy seat of God in the presence of the Lord. No, no, no. He said that's not going to happen very soon. He said because God's spirit isn't going to be regulated to two cherubim on top of a mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. God's spirit is going to be in a new temple. It's going to be in your body. You are going to become the temple of that spirit. You're going to become the temple of the Holy Ghost. It's going to not going to be regulated to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, or any other mountain. It's going to be that. <laughs> you'll be able to worship any time of night, any time of day, any day of the week, the new moons, the festivals on an off day. Why? Because you'll be the temple of the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. It won't take a sacrifice of a bull or a goat or a lamb, but you'll present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable servant. 
worship him in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. He's looking for true worshipers. The Father seeketh such to worship him. In other words, Jesus was making known right then. True worship isn't whether you worship in Mount Gerizim or Mount Jerusalem, Mount Zion. He says in that hour, it's going to be if you worship the Lord. Amen. Because you've been filled with his spirit. He says, and he's not saying this to be mean, and I got to hurry, it's red. He says, salvation is of the Jews. He's not being mean in saying that. And for many people's interpretation, well, salvation of the Jews, they got it all wrapped up, blah, 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 blah. Then it's, no, 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 no. He's saying salvation is of the Jews because, again, he's not being mean. He simply was letting her know that she had a partial record, the first five books. The law of Moses. She had a partial record. But the Jews, and this is true, folks, from the beginning of time even to now, the Jewish people, because of their oral traditions and their traditions then finally have taken even their oral traditions and putting pen to page and the safeguarding that and the very careful copying of scrolls. We have then the vehicle, then they were the vehicle of salvation. And has really, in many ways, the Jews have brought us even the English translation. We have this today because of their oral traditions, being faithful to passing things orally that God had spoken and said. And even Moses, what's God saying? Write it down, write it down, write it down. Rehearse it in theirs. Because of that, then it has been a vehicle to get this to nations of people. Nations of people. Because it's been preserved. Amen. By that nation in particular. Amen. Moses, of course, as I've already stated, he kept records, but so did many others as well. Amen. And so with that, because of the oral tradition and the record that we have, a person can trace the development of the salvation that we know in Acts 2 all the way back from Genesis forward. We see sacrificing of some type of animal to provide clothing for Adam and Eve that sinned in the very beginning that replaced their fig leaves, that there is a good basis of salvation all the way back in the book of Genesis. It took a sacrifice to cover them from the sin that they committed. And we can build the development of that all the way back to from Genesis through all the other scriptures leading up to where we are in the New Testament right now. And so salvation is of the Jews. They've kept this. They've protected that. They have guarded that. But it doesn't just stop with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It goes on with the prophets and it goes on with the Psalms. The Bible says, and I, I'm hurrying, I, and I, I will. I'll be done very shortly. Okay. She didn't know the scripture says, she said, you, you don't know what you worship. He says, but we know what we worship. She didn't really know what she worshiped again because she had been handed an abbreviated truth. Let me just throw this at you. Again, just extra over on the side, just extra. If you could, and this is, I'm not saying it is, I'm not saying it is, I'm just saying it's something to think about. Call your husband here to be with you. I have no husband. I've rightly said, you have had five husbands, the one you're with now is not your own. If you'll remember from last week, back in the book of Kings, there were five main cities that the Syrians came from to camp into northern uh, the northern kingdom of Israel in the capital of Samaria. It was those five that had influence that gave birth to this Samaritan concept and idea of Gentiles coming in with Jews, five of them. You hearing me? I'm, just, I'm not saying it is or isn't. You've had five. 
And the one you're with is not your husband right now. Who was she with presently? The Lord. I don't know. But I say all that to say this. She didn't know what she worshipped. Because along with these different people that's coming in from these different cities and towns or different gods and different ideologies and blah, blah, blah. And they threw God in on just a mix just so no one's going to be missed. She don't know what she worshipped. He says, but we know. But whenever you, and please listen to me very clearly. Overall, this is a statement that I want to be known here tonight. She knew not what she worshipped because she had an abbreviated truth. And when truth is abbreviated in any generation, in any regard, people will never truly know what they're worshiping. She knew about the Messiah. You can stand with me. She knew about the Christ. She knew in part that this Messiah would tell her all things. But Jesus just makes it very plain in this moment of verse number 26. He basically tells her, you talk about the Messiah, you talk about, you know, he's going to come, the Christ, he's going to tell you all things. He says, let me, revelation for you. He says, I who speaketh with thee, unto thee, am he. Make no bones about it, Samaritan woman. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. And her immediate reaction to go back to Samaria and talk to people that she knew concerning this, that immediate reaction unveils the power of an unabbreviated truth, one that is fully disclosed, one that is totally given. She's ready to tell others. She's ready to share it with somebody else. Further passages beyond the law, the first five books of the Bible, no doubt those things lend to the idea of a coming Messiah. Amen. But there were others beyond that that she did not, Except she did not subscribe to. But Jesus, again, in this moment, he's just tearing the veil totally off of this topic by revealing, amen, the unabbreviated truth. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. And regardless if you're immoral, a Samaritan, a lady, I've come here for you just the same as I came here for anybody else. And I'm the Savior of the world. And I want you to give and I want to give you water to drink of where you'll never thirst again. The power of an unabbreviated truth. If we bow our heads here this evening. Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost. God Almighty, I thank you, Jesus, tonight for your scriptures. I thank you, Lord, for Genesis to Revelation. I thank you, Lord, for the truth that is spoken in them. I pray, O oh God, I do not, Lord, desire to, Lord, handpick some from here and some from there, Lord, and try to meagerly live my life with those. God, for that's an abbreviation of what you have given and handed to us. But God, I want to take this whole counsel from Genesis to Revelation, and I want to try to live my life and worship the Lord, God, with an unabbreviated truth. God, I want to, Lord, leave tonight with the understanding that in spite of what culture tells me of what God accepts or, or what the church will recognize or give ear or eye to, God, I want to be able to get engaged long enough with a connection and a conversation with you 
that there is a spirit of revelation that comes that he's more than a man, he's more than a carpenter, he's a prophet, he is the savior of the world. He is my and can be my personal savior. I pray, oh God, tonight move upon the man or the woman, God, that may be here or watching Lord Jesus by Facebook Live tonight. God, that they have lived their life thus far combating the voices of culture that's told them they're not good enough, they, 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 they can't, they've done too much wrong, so on and so forth. God, break down the cultural Lord Jesus mentality and step into, Lord, the place of their well, Lord, and converse with them and win them over, Lord, to who you really are. God, explain to them, Lord, whether it be by the church or somebody in this church, let somebody have explained to them the gift of God and who God truly is and the distance that he's willing to go for all of mankind and humanity. I pray, oh Lord, this evening, help us, God, to walk in the power of your might, God, in your resurrection, and will not fail to give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor for it. In the lovely name of the Lord Jesus Christ that I pray, amen and amen. Can the church say amen? God bless you tonight in Jesus' name. We will be live on Facebook Sunday morning. We're continuing with the gifts of the Spirit that we started a couple weeks ago. Seems like it's been a month ago from there, but nonetheless, we'll pick back up and go forward, and then we'll have in-house service here on Sunday night. I pray that you have a lovely, lovely week, and God bless you in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.